Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Faith in Your Recovery. I'm Randy Davis, former pastor, founder, and executive director of Better Life, Brianna's Hope. We are a participant-driven, faith-based, compassion-filled support and recovery movement for those battling the battle with substance use disorder slash addiction. We're thrilled that you've taken time out of your day to be a part of this. I have a special guest with me today, a young lady I met a number of years ago. I know she's been there, done that, has the scars to prove it, but she's also got a victory story to share. So, welcome, Rochelle. Thank you, Randy. It's good, good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you with us. What I want to do here is get you to share some of that story with our folks who don't know it. I've got a little bit of it, but I know there's a different nugget each time that you're able to offer it to us. So let's go way back in your life to those early childhood days. Tell us about Rochelle as a child, as a kid, okay? Growing up, I had an amazing childhood. Um, my family is awesome. If there's a couple things that stick out to me was when there was never a dull moment, ever. My dad was super. My mom was always supportive of us. Um, I have an older sister. I have two younger brothers. We'll start with that. We'll get into where it kind of all changes. In 2002... Um, we were in an ATV accident, and I lost my younger brother in that accident. Then... How old was he at that time, Rochelle? He was four. And you were how old? Six. Okay. And that caused my parents to go into their own um, addiction and their own downward spiral. I remember just a couple of times my dad had the door kicked in on him, and I also remember one time he was out working in the yard and the police showed up and they took him away in handcuffs and it's just little things like that that stick out. At that time, I did not know that my parents had a problem. At that time, I did not know that there was anything going on that was not normal. Yeah. It wasn't until I was older and I don't think I had began my addiction yet when I found out that they actually had a problem. But that was definitely a huge game changer in our lives as oh children. It would have had to have been Rochelle back to the accident for a moment. Sure. I'm not going to ask you to dig real deep. But do you remember, were you able to understand what had happened at your age? What was that like for you? So I don't remember it as vividly as I used to. But I was supposed to buckle my little brother in and... I didn't the way that it should have been done. And we were on the ride and in the moment, no, I don't believe so. But I remember after we wrecked, I said, Kyle, Kyle, look at me. And he opened his eyes and he looked at me and then he closed his eyes. And that was the last time I ever got to see my brother. From there, I was rushed via helicopter to Parkview. 
in Fort Wayne. Our babysitter had went to Parkview in Fort Wayne as well as my little brother. Okay. So you, you were all together on the ATV. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. And that was there near your house. Wasn't that across the road? We don't have to give an address, but was that? It was probably a quarter mile from the house. It wasn't like okay. right across the road, but it close was close enough to, to home. home. That it's it's still a reminder of that moment. So yeah, you were talking there how that was the moment that kind of set your folks into that tailspin, that downhill spiral, as you call it. Right. Tell us a little more about that, then we'll hear about how it worked on you. So I remember every time I've ever heard my dad talk about it. He said he heard the sirens and he just knew. He left my mom at the house and he took off. Somebody came down and told him, your kids were in a wreck. And every time he has told the story, he has said he remembers trying to run down the road and they wouldn't let him. By they, you mean like the police mm-hmm. and everyone? They just cordoned it off and yeah. could... Okay. Yeah. Okay. What were some of your next moves after that? How did that hit mom and dad? You told us a little. I woke up in the hospital and my parents were not there. That was kind of scary. And I didn't know at that time that I did not have a little brother anymore. And I hated it. I hated every moment of it. It felt like I was there for an eternity. It felt like they were picking on me. I remember... (laughs) kicking the doctor when he was taking the staples out of my stomach because it hurt and I was only six it's not like I was you know 15 and you could explain everything to me and why we're doing this and what's going on I remember because I don't really remember a whole lot of the hospital stay but I remember coming home and I was laying in bed and the neighbors were over there and she was like you have to get up and take a shower why I'm in pain I don't want to move I don't want to do this From there, my parents weren't really around, but they also had their own business, so it wasn't really anything that was new. They just were more absent Yes. when it came to me and my other little brother. So what did the darkening of their life created by this as they moved into that addiction, what did that look like as a family? We definitely didn't go out and do anything. (laughs) And if we did, it was like, maybe go get McDonald's or something, but it wasn't really there. Did you become kind of isolated as a family? Was it talked about or was it just felt through the pain? It was definitely not talked about ever. Um, We had awesome babysitters at the time, and they were the ones that I remember like vividly always there and taking us to do stuff. And I'm sure my parents were probably there, but they weren't there. Yes, physically present, but emotionally and everything else, they're still feeling that hurt and every, you know, all the aspects of that. And we're losing that parenting skill out of the loss they'd already suffered. Right. I can't imagine what that was like for them or for you or, uh, you know, the dynamics that went with that. So how long did their struggle go on, their addiction? I would say probably around five-ish years. Okay. To put an actual number on it, I don't know. That's close enough, sure. We don't really talk about it. Okay. I mean, we've talked about it when it comes to talking about my addiction. I've never sat down and been like, how long did you use for? Like, I know what their drug of choice was. Can you share that? Yeah. Their drug of choice was meth. I was 
at the time, when I got older, a heroin addict first, they could never relate to me because they did not understand what heroin actually did to you. Uh huh. Okay. So when my mom would share, like, we did meth and this is what it did. And yeah, I know what meth did, mom. Okay. Okay. So amidst all that change, all that transitioning, and you started down a similar path, what did your path look like? What age were you? How did you take those steps? Tell us some of the motions you went through. Well, so in school, I was like bullied by the other kids because of things that happened with my family. What age at this time? You say you were in school. Is that elementary still? Is that middle school, high school? Give us an idea. Middle school, high school is when it was like really bad. Okay. I became violent. I would beat people up for no reason. When I got to high school, I skipped school a lot. I wasn't present. I was always angry. And there wasn't really like a known factor as to why. When I worked through it later on, it was like... A slap in the face. This is why. Sure. Um, Had you been given any kind of help or just sought out or the family sought you out any kind of counseling to help you with that time? At one point in time, I think I was probably 10 or 12, somewhere around in there. I did see a girl who worked as a case manager, and I absolutely hated her. She was so mean. She would just ask a million questions. I did not like the way that she was because it seemed like to me that she was passing judgment and I didn't like that. So then I would just shut down. So the questions are needed. We don't like the questions and there's a right way and a wrong way to ask them. We get that. But you just felt like it was so much toward the wrong way that you couldn't you couldn't open yourself up as you might have wished you could at that time yes right yep exactly okay then move us on forward from there what the addiction did to you you've explained some of your anger some of your hurt the violence that you didn't mind putting on somebody and tell us more about that Um, so my addiction started when i was 15 i started smoking weed started doing pain pills and it was like on a whenever somebody had it basis It wasn't every single day I would go look and go find it. So if presented, if it was in front of you, you were going to use it, not necessarily seek and search. Right. Okay. Until later on, like a year, probably a year later is when it was more prominent that that's what I really wanted because it numbed. It made me feel better. I didn't have to deal with my emotions. And then eventually... (laughs) when they became outrageously priced and I was not going to pay that amount. Um, I was introduced into heroin. I kept it on the super, super down low for a long time. Now, by the down low, you mean you kept it quiet, tried to hide it the best you could, yes? Yeah. Okay. Um, There was people when I was using heroin that had no idea that I was even using, but they would say, do you want some? And I would say no because I didn't want certain people to know and then eventually feel like I was 18 at the time now I just didn't care anymore and I started using every day with whoever I didn't care that was still heroin was there anything else involved or was heroin so much your drug of choice you just didn't even uh, care much about anything else uh heroin was really the it thing at that point I mean I smoked weed and stuff but heroin was the it 
when I was 18 is the first time I shot up heroin. And that was an entire game changer in itself. Were you alone when you shot up or were you with others and it was happening? So you thought, here's my chance. And uh, you let them, pardon the expression, even mentor you into uh, here's how. So it's funny that you say that. I had watched people do it before and I would see how it would make them. And that's how I wanted to be. You're always chasing that first high that you got, but there was just something different. So what did you see? You say you saw what it made them. How could you describe what it made them that enticed you? Well, let me start with, I feel like when you do heroin, you kind of sign your death certificate that you're okay to die. And when I was around people who would shoot up, that is what you've seen a lot. Falling asleep on themselves, just feeling good. You could see the rush compared to when you would do heroin a different way. That's what I wanted. I wanted to feel like that. You were okay to sign that death certificate. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Go ahead with that, please. Um, so I did heroin, just heroin, for probably two years. And in the meantime, I'd been arrested. I'd gotten out of jail. Multiple um, times or <clears throat> once? So the first time, it was just a basic possession of a syringe charge. I bonded out and nothing ever came of it. Slap of the hand kind of thing. And Yep. My next charge was in Randolph County, and I had to do a year, just under a year on that one. And it was for possession of heroin, possession of cocaine, and possession of a syringe with an OWI charge. And that was the first time I ever got in trouble. So during that year, how much of that did you spend in jail? Was it the full year or did you, were you able to get out early? Because I want to know what was going through your mind while you were in jail. I'm done with this or I can't wait to get to it. I sat for four months before I went for my sentencing. Part of my sentencing was to go to a rehab facility and complete the rehab. I went to the rehab facility. I lasted nine days. I just couldn't do it. They wanted me to pardon my French, kiss their ass over how my character and personality is. And anyone that knows me knows that I have a huge personality and I'm kind of a lot to handle. But I don't think I should have to apologize for that ever as long as it's not causing harm to anybody. And if I'm making others laugh, what is your problem? You would rather kick their tail than kiss their tail. I know you that well. Uh, You are a, uh, you know, you have a powerful spirit. There's no doubt about that. That can work for us. That can work against us. So while you were there in jail, once again, the comment I made a moment ago, were you thinking, I can't wait to get out of here and get back to this, or I'll never do that again? So after I got kicked out of the rehab, They eventually had allowed me to go to a work release program. And this was like months later. In the meantime, I'm thinking, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to get high. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sit back in jail. I think this is probably the thought that a lot of people have. When I hit work release, I did good for probably two weeks. And then things were thrown in my face. I failed. I uh, started doing suboxone on a regular basis while on the work release program. They came and 
drug tested all of us that was on the work release program. 12 of us that day had gotten pulled from work release for failing for Suboxone and or another substance. How many of you were on work release that day? You said 12 of you got pulled from it. What was the total number? I just, yeah, personal I, interest. I believe it was like 20. I believe so there was over about half of you kind of thing on work release were breaking those standards and got caught at it. Yep. Did that send you back then to the cell? Yep. I had to finish my time. How long? I believe I had two months left okay. at the time and I just had to finish it. Okay. So in the meantime, while I was there, I did 68 days in segregation for beating up a girl. And I had like a whole lot of time to think. And that was when I really decided and um, built my relationship with God. What led you to that? Was it desperation? Did someone speak to you? Why did you start at that moment to choose the God path, the faith path? So my mom had gotten sober by power of prayer, and that is what has always kept her sober. And she's always talked to me about it, and I do believe. It just never was at the top of my priority list, I guess. So I spent that time to really focus on me and focus on what I needed to learn because it was definitely quiet when you're by yourself for 68 days. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't imagine what goes through your mind at a time like that, okay? But something did go through your mind, and maybe more so your heart, and that was that, let's just call it lights-on moment, that moment of revelation, whatever you'd like to, enlightenment, and you decided there is another way here. So let's go forward from there, from that 68 days and that initial uh, thought of, wow, maybe this God can do something or he's real, however that played out for you, take us the next step of the journey from there. Once you got out of jail that time, what did life look like? So, like I had said, I had started using when I was on the work release program. I had gotten released from incarceration. I continued probably for two weeks. I went to a couple meetings and did that kind of thing for just a moment. Within two weeks, I was back off into the deep end again. And it wasn't like a slow, let's ease into it. It was like head first, let's go. Wasn't that pretty much Michelle, or excuse me, Rochelle's uh, way? Uh, yeah. If you're going in, you're going in all the way. That's yeah. That's that personality style again, right? It's exactly. all or nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, go ahead. You said you went to a couple of meetings. Mm -hmm. Where were those meetings? What were those meetings? Oh, oh, they were ABLBH meetings. The first one I ever went to, I was so mad. My dad drug me in there. And I knew as soon as I left, I was going to get high. I had been doing other things, not heroin or anything like that. But I had done substances. And then he made me go to this meeting and I hated it. I hated every moment of it. Right. Who now. led that <laughs> meeting, uh, Rochelle? <gasps> Who was up front at that meeting? Oh, I think his name was Randy Davis. Yeah, so do I. I can remember where you were seated. We've <laughs> talked about that. I can remember the arms crossed, the anger in the eyes. What thrilled me was you were there. Uh, maybe not totally present, but I believe that uh, the rain splatters on those without the umbrella, okay? I agree. So, yeah, okay, go ahead then with your path. So then eventually I did off into the deep end, 
and I quit going to meetings. I want to say it was probably nine months I had used for nine months. And then, I don't know, one day I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I showed back up into the meetings again. I was still getting high, but I showed up. Then it was kind of like a revolving door for a little bit. I would do okay, and then I would fall off, and then I would do okay, and then I would fall off. And what really changed was, I believe it was 2016, I had been on a meth binge for days because, I don't know, that was the cool thing to do. I'd been doing heroin, but wanted to stop doing heroin, so then I was like, we'll just do meth. And I'd been up for probably four days, five days, something. I was on my way to Muncie with a girlfriend. She had totally convinced me that the police were chasing us. They were not. But because I had been up for so many days, the hallucination just took me over. So when we made it to Muncie, there was actually police like trying to get us. And I remember running through the Morningside neighborhood trying to get away and I caught a taxi to the south side of Muncie. We were just walking down the street and a random cop car was driving down the road, didn't have anything to do with me. And I took off running. They were running after me because I took off running. Why why is she running? Yes. Two days later, I was hanging out with some quote-unquote friends, and we were doing everything under the sun. Heroin, meth, Xanax, bath salts, anything that we could get our hands on. And if you know, that is like a lethal combination. I had taken off from where we were, and I overdosed behind the wheel of my car. Thankfully, a truck driver had found me. When the ambulance showed up, they said I was super violent. They said I still had the needle and everything in my lap. I had the drugs on the passenger seat. I was hit with Narcan, but because I was on so many other things, it had sent me into a psychotic rage. I remember them belting me down to the gurney, and then I don't remember anything until I woke up like however much long later in the hospital. I called my mom, told her I was at Ball Hospital, I was not at Ball Hospital. I was at Bluffton Regional. So eventually when my mom found me and they let me go, there was a police officer there and I asked him, do I have any warrants? Because I was sober at this time and I'd been sober for like 72 hours. I was just going to go turn myself in if I had a warrant. And he said, no, you're good. So I left, went and got high again. Two days later, I was on my way home from Lafayette. I came through Indianapolis, Hamilton County area. I'd been up for however long since it was I took off from the uh, hospital. And I'd just been up for however long, just getting high. Cops were really chasing me. Took them on a high-speed chase in Hamilton County for 45 minutes. Probably one of the stupidest things I did during my addiction. But I look back on it now and I'm thankful that I'm still alive because I put many lives in danger that day. Yeah. So fast forward, I took enough drugs with me and I left. I went to Chicago, Illinois. I remember different trips and connections. (laughs) I got sober, sober sober-ish, and that was in January. So by March the 29th of 2017, that's my sober day, was when I was officially sober. And then I found out I had court for the one case. So I came home. I went to court. And I was leaving or I was getting ready to 
meet someone from Chicago, I don't remember. And I got pulled over in Daleville and I had a warrant from Wells County that they told me I did not have any charges or anything. So before the statute of limitations was up, they had to file charges and they filed their charges on me. At that point, I took off again because I was not going to deal with it. I didn't want to. I was sober. You were how old at this time? 21 or two. That's close enough. I took off back to Chicago. I got back around the wrong people. This is where the part of my story gets super ugly. I had gotten into the hands of a pimp. When you meet the wrong person that sells you a dream and you have to do what they say to do in order for you to live, you have to do what they tell you to do. One time my car got stolen. He beat me to the brink of death. He pistol whipped me. My jaw was broken. My nose was broken. My eye socket was fractured. By the time I made it to the hospital, my face was four times the size of what it normally is. Um, They could not do surgery right away because the swelling was so bad. So when they eventually did surgery, they had to go in and re-break my jaw to reset it because it had sat for so long. I remember them asking me more than one time what had actually happened. And I couldn't tell them because he was always in the room. I knew it was going to be really ugly if I said anything. I'd gotten out of the hospital. In my mind, I knew that I was not going to do this forever, but I knew I had to do what I had to do to be alive. I'm sober at this point. It was scary. I mean, I would drink, but that was to do what I had to do. And I hated every moment of it. I hated it so much. It was probably, I want to say maybe a month, month and a half later, he had gotten picked up for dealing from a previous case like a long time ago. It was a warrant that he had, and I took the opportunity to run. My children's father is actually someone who would pay to see me on a weekly basis. He is who I called when I was ready to leave, and I took off. He put me in a hotel, and I hid there for weeks and weeks. Eventually, I contacted my mom and let my mom know what was going on. My kid's father had convinced me to go back and take care of my court stuff. I did not want to, but eventually we had hired a lawyer and we gotten things set out and scheduled for October the 2nd. And I would come back and I would be sentenced for my Hamilton County case where I took the high-speed chase. Okay. I remember it like it was yesterday. I came home the weekend before court. My lawyer had been telling me, we're going to get probation. We're going to get probation. We're going to get probation. This is a level five felony. We're not going to get probation. But I had it like set in my head that this is what, sure. what we were going to get. And I was so hopeful, I guess. And it didn't happen. So I got charged with resisting law enforcement with a motor vehicle and endangering a peace officer's person. Okay. They sentenced me to a year, and then I had eventually, while I was incarcerated there, Wells County came and picked me up and sentenced me on that case, and it was possession, internal possession, possession of a syringe, and at this point was my third OWI. So they were trying to hit me with a habitual charge. I would think so, just by what you've shared. Yes. Well, I got lucky because the Wells County case happened previously to the Hamilton County case. So they legally could not hit me with a habitual charge. Okay. 
So they sentenced me to a year on that case as well. All but four months ran concurrent with the Hamilton County case. So I ended up doing about 16 months. Okay. Okay. Bring us up to how you got to where you are today in your life. We can do uh, that, thankfully, because that was the end of my little... Good. So that's... Rendezvous. Good segue, right? Uh, yeah, so go ahead. Bring us up. I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's some good at the end of this rainbow, and it's not over yet. But go ahead and share with folks. There, there really is. So like I had mentioned, my kid's father, I had met him. He had stayed, well, answered the phone when I would call while I was incarcerated. So when I came home, he was there, which was great at the time. Two months later, I found out I was pregnant with my son. That's the one that really saved my life because my kid's father was in active addiction the entire time we were together, and we were together for four years. I did not want to accept it. The signs were right there in my face. Sure, sure. They would slap me all the time. Every time I would come home and visit, I would go back and I would find paraphernalia all over my house. That was probably one of the hardest things ever is to accept where I came from and then know what I loved. His drug of choice was crack, which was one drug I never tried. So I didn't understand the hold that it had on him. Kind of back to your folks with the meth, mm-hmm. not being able to understand you with the heroin. And now you, it's tough for you to identify and understand the crack. Okay, exactly. go ahead, please. Exactly. So I was really holding on to something that would never be, if that makes sense. I had my son, May the 16th of 2019. He was just awesome. I I've think. met him more than once. I guess you only meet somebody once. I've been around him several times. Might be a mother's uh, biased opinion. but well, better be. <laughs> He's pretty cool. So I stayed with their dad. We had gotten a place. I was back and forth for a long time as ABLBH had saw because I would always come back and then I would leave and then I would come back and then I would leave, you know. Relapse behaviors, even if not relapse on drugs. <laughs> exactly. I found out I was pregnant with my daughter when my son was 11 months old. I was not enthused. I was mad. Eventually, she kind of grew on me, I guess. But I was not happy at that moment because I knew what I was already living in was not a good place to raise children. At 20 weeks when I was pregnant with my daughter, I'd found out that she was going to have to have surgery after she was born. That was a huge thing. I remember calling my mother and telling her that I wanted to get so high because I did not know how to deal with these emotions. I like worked through everything else, white knuckled, because I was not, I mean, I was attending some meetings, but it was kind of hard to find online meetings at the time. And I refused to take my newborn child to a meeting where I did not know anyone especially in the area that we were in. Fast forward, November 2nd of 2020, and my daughter, she was just the prettiest little girl I ever laid my eyes on. January the 20th, 2021. I had been arguing with my kid's father for days on end at this point. He had done things throughout our relationship. He had put his hands on me before. 
He was a gaslighting narcissist. I did not know it then, but I know it now. So January the 20th of 2021, I had found out that the woman that he had been cheating cheating on me with for four years, he had pregnant. That was one of the hardest things that I ever had to digest because I already knew that where I was with my kids was not a healthy place. You had every opportunity to be a father to your first two kids, and he was not. On January the 23rd, I packed all my things that I could fit in my car. I took my kids, and I came home. And I was back and forth until May because my daughter had to have surgery. And I was not going to go through the whole process of explaining and finding a new doctor. Exactly. All of that stuff. So we would go back and forth making trips. In April, I had spoken to Travis Jester, who works for the Jay County Drug Prevention Coalition. And an opportunity arose for me to become a peer recovery coach. And I jumped on it. I was so excited. They knew my daughter had to have surgery, so they knew I would not be able to do a whole lot until June. I did my classes and all of that stuff, and June I started working as a peer recovery coach. In August, I became a certified peer recovery coach. I now am a certified peer recovery coach, which just means that I've jumped through hoops, I've done the classes, and I'm a certified peer recovery coach. This is something... (laughs) That's quite a journey. And I think in my mind of where you were, you know, some of those dark spots, those struggles, those challenges, and you're not liking someone who's telling you what to do. And then you get to a point to where out of your own experiences, the education through getting your certification in a couple, three ways is allowing you to give of yourself and to pay back and to pay forward and to help lift others up because the list of the the experiences you had that, you know, were not what you're real pleased with now was long enough. There's not a lot that you've missed out on, obviously. <laughs> how, how does it make you feel to be able to be where you are right now? How does how does how does Rochelle feel about Rochelle, we're getting ready to wrap this up shortly, but go ahead. I wish you guys could see the smile on my face. So do I. So do I. (laughs) Um, Because it it feels amazing. It really does. I never in a million years thought that I would be able to help others who have been in similar situations as myself and being able to just give back is such an amazing thing. So what is the next step for Rochelle? Where do you want to go now in your life? I don't mean geographically where you want to travel, but do you have that that next step in mind or you're searching for that right now? I am a certified peer recovery coach. I'm looking for the next big thing and where I'm going to go and what I want to do. That's That's good. Yeah. I'm excited for opportunities because I know opportunities come to those who wait. Amen to that. (laughs) Listen, let's go ahead and close this up. One more question. Sure. As you're well aware of, the title of our podcast is Faith in Your Recovery. What does that title mean to you? Your definition of it. Uh, 
Yeah, um, we don't have a written one because it's going to fit different, just like every journey does. Right. Um, well, this is my unbiased opinion, but not everybody follows the same path as I do. So faith in my recovery would be not only faith in myself, but faith in the ones around me who support me and get me through every single day. That's absolutely a part of it because you know what one crowd can do versus the other crowd. And if you're not around those on the same mission, you're going to end up on a mission you didn't plan on going on and in a place you didn't want to be. Anything else, Rochelle, you'd like to share here? Other than I believe in anyone who is struggling right now, the overdoses that have happened recently have really hurt my heart. And if people haven't heard it, I want people to know that I believe in them. That's so important because there are those who are in places where they don't believe in themselves. They can't, you know, they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't even know how deep they are in the tunnel. And so if we can just keep that little bit of encouragement until it grows within them, the seed gets planted and they start to grow, they can move on their own. And then we can sit back and smile like you've been here in the last (laughs) few moments, right? Absolutely. Well, listen, Rochelle, we so appreciate your honesty, your openness, your vulnerability. It can't be easy, but you've seen the difference it can make, not just for you and in you, but also with others. So uh, God bless and thank you. Thank you, Randy. All right, folks, uh, once again, you've heard it here on Faith in Your Recovery and We just hope you'll let this resonate in your heart that you'll be there with and for others around you who are struggling. We don't have all the answers. We don't even know all the questions, but we know that together we can stay in the battle.